You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On this year's International Women's Day, March 8, 2018, Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, sat down for a wide-ranging interview with Washington Post opinion writer Catherine Rampell. Lagarde, who became the first woman appointed to the post of Finance and Economy Minister of France in 2007 and the first woman to hold the top job at the IMF, discussed women's economic equality, global economic issues, and what's next for the Me Too movement at home and around the world. Let's listen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on International Women's Day. I'm very excited to be having this conversation with uh, Madame Lagarde and with all of you. Um, I understand that several embassies are represented here, and we have, we have others from government, from the business community, and, uh, and all sorts of walks of life. So this is a wonderful opportunity, and I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, I am Catherine Rampell. I should have said that first. I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post. Uh, I write often about economics and women's issues, and that will be reflected in our conversation here. But I'd first like to introduce our esteemed guest, um, uh, Christine Lagarde, uh, who is the uh, managing director of the IMF, International Monetary Fund. In 2011, Madame Lagarde became the 11th managing director of the IMF, and as you heard, she is the first woman to hold that position. She is actually the first woman to have held a lot of elite positions in her career. Uh, previously, she had various jobs in the French government, including Minister for Foreign Trade and the Finance and Economy Minister, which made her actually the first woman to hold that job in any G7 country, if I'm correct. Uh, so she's broken through many glass ceilings, and we'll talk some about that today. Prior to that, um, or excuse me, prior to her current position, uh, she, was also, she also chaired the ECOFIN Council, which brings together economics and finance ministers of the EU. She helped foster international policies related to financial supervision, regulation, uh, strengthening global economic governance. And as chairman of the G20, uh, when France took over in 2011, she set in motion a wide-ranging work agenda uh, on the reform of the international monetary system. In her role as IMF managing director, to which she was reappointed in 2016, uh, she has, among other, thing, among other things, been a strong advocate for women's financial empowerment and their role in strengthening economic growth. So th please welcome our guest. And I also want to let all of you know uh, who are in the room and who are watching online, I, I imagine there are some of you, hi mom and dad, um, that uh, you can tweet questions to Madame Lagarde using the hashtag postlive. And I'll pose some of them to her later in the evening. Um, they're being sent to me in a curated fashion by iPad, so watch for that. 
So again, thank you for joining us. I thought maybe we would start by uh, hearing your pitch for why women's greater social and cultural status can translate to greater economic growth. I think there are a lot of people who are in favor of both of those outcomes, but what's the connection between the two of them? Is there a causal connection? Well, I'll, first of all, good, good afternoon, and it's very nice to be here at The Post, and very nice to be with you, Catherine, and happy Women's Day to all the women and men in the room. <laughs> and I'm glad that they're both men and women. So I'd love to say a few words about a working paper that we just published yesterday on the occasion of, of March the 8th. But I just want to share with you uh, what is very helpful to me uh, to remember what is actually needed for women to be properly empowered and to contribute to the economy as they should if they so want. And for me, the best way to remember that is the four L's. So the first one is the law, and I'll come to that in a second. The second one is learning. The third one is uh, labor. And the fourth one is leadership. I start with, the, with L, the law, not so much because I'm a lawyer by background and I've practiced for many years, but because we, has, we have actually found out in our research that, and you will be surprised by that number, of the roughly 150 countries out of our 189 members at the IMF, 90%, 90, actually have in their legal system, either in the constitution or in the law or in the soft law, which in some countries actually matters more, discriminations against women. And we have also identified that in several countries where the law was changed, either at the constitutional or at the legal level, as a result of that, within five years, you could see a very significant increase of female labor force participation. So the law actually matters. And I'll come to now this, this paper that we have just uh, published yesterday, which is called What is Driving Women's Financial Inclusion Across Countries? We have found out that actually when there is a legal environment that protects women, that gives them legal tools against discrimination, that gives them protection against sexual harassment. Their access to finance is generally, almost invariably, actually deeper and significantly deeper in terms of uh, banking, in terms of saving, and in terms of credit. And that legal background is certainly a very strong correlation with this increased access to finance. You also see in multiple research that economic empowerment is often a factor of access to finance. When you look at the role that women play either as self-employed, either as SMEs, or simply in, 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 the, uh, in the labor force, because of that access to finance, they become more independent, more empowered from an economic point of view. And you enter that virtuous circle where having that economic empowerment and that level of independence, their vulnerability is reduced as far as other matters are concerned. So that's as far as the first L is concerned. I'm happy to go into all my other L's if you want. So a question about that. How do we know that it's actually causal, right? I mean, could oh, it... Then the, could you, it can, you can go forever into that debate and economists rave with, is it really causality? Well, you know, be it as it may, and even if it was not, you know, 100% perfect, 
there is a strong enough a correlation that we actually have to level the playing field so that women can actually have proper access to finance. In your life, um, as you all have heard, you've broken many glass ceilings. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit today about um, whether you have faced gender-related discrimination in your own career uh, or even harassment. And if so, how has that informed your outlook on these kinds of policies? You know, for, for a period of my life, I did not face um, discrimination because I was, I was a girl. Uh, I was brought up in a family of boys. Uh, my mother was a, was a professor, my father was a professor, and I, they, they made no difference between us. So in early, at an early stage, I certainly did not face discrimination. And I was the eldest of the group, and I was as fierce and, and, and mean as my, my brothers were. So, uh, and they suffered. Um, <laughs> and, and the first sort of really in-my-face discrimination uh, was when I, I applied for a job with the largest, most prestigious, and, and uh, uh, respected law firm in, in Paris. And you know, I was fully equipped with all the skills and had taken the exams and was a fully qualified person. I thought so. And they thought so too. So when I submitted my resume and had the interviews, everything was fine. Uh, until, you know, eventually um, I found out when I asked, well, will I become an associé in your firm, a partner? They looked at me with a smile. That was way back, huh? It has changed a little bit. <laughs> but uh, way back in 1979, they looked at me with a smile and they said, of course not. And I said, well, why is that? And they said with a bigger smile, well, because you're a woman. So I packed up my stuff took my resume and left. But that was like the first, you know, okay, why? Because you're a woman. So then I was lucky because I, I found Baker McKenzie and the, the woman who interviewed me was the uh, managing partner and, uh, and she, she certainly was uh, for me a, a, a role model and, and somebody who was trying to, to she was extremely demanding and, and the research and the work that we had to do was, was uh, was huge, but she was also um, a coach, and she was she was um, standing for us as well. I I assume that this experience that you had was in France. Yeah, yeah, yes. that was in Paris, but uh, it would have been the same here. Come on. Were there laws? <laughs> were there laws on the books at the time that sh yeah. should have shielded yeah, yeah, you? Yeah, 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 yeah. They were they were. Um, I think back from 1973, the first sort of very, very uh, rigorous and sometimes associated with criminal penalties in case of violation, uh, there were laws uh, in the civil code that, that punished discrimination on the basis of, of gender, of, of sexual preference and, and all the rest of it. But that was, you know, it's the whole difference between what's in the books and what is actually implemented and, and what, um, what confidence um, women or, or victims of discriminations have to, to actually take the fight or, or argue their case and say, you know, this is, this is not acceptable. And, and that is, that is the, you know, the, the journey between the law and the implementation is something that is... Right, so if it's about norms rather yeah. than laws, what are the tools? Well, you need both. You need you both. Need, so, okay, sorry, yeah. yes. You need sorry, the, not either you or. Need, you, you need it to begin with. If norms are a critical component here, how do we go about 
changing norms, right? I mean, how do we go about making it so that partners at a law firm don't think that it's okay to yeah. say comments like that, or, or in, even if they don't, if they know better than to make a comment like that to a woman today, to act on those kind of preconceived views about who deserves to be partner. Well, I think that you know it, it, it has to be a multifaceted approach. Uh, it has to do about teamwork, and I think that men and women should be part of that same um, expectations and, and requirements that the norms actually change. I think the more um, women are empowered in the organization, and that touches on my last L, which is leadership. You know, if, if I know that there are, it's no surprise that I joined Baker McKenzie because there was a woman who was a managing partner in that office. So there was somebody at a level uh, who could actually say, what? Discriminate against an associate because she's a woman? No. So having, having leadership, uh, I mean, women in leadership position is, is also a critical uh, matter. I think it, you know, it starts from the top. When you have, um, let, let me give you the example. I'm, I'm tempted to take my country, but I'll take, I'll take Canada, for instance. Uh, in Canada, Justin Trudeau has determined that he was a feminist and that he was going to have 50% female cabinet, that he was going to push these issues, that they were going to apply uh, gender budgeting in their, in their fiscal process. It, you know, when, when it happens in that way, then discrimination in the norms is, is just not appropriate, not tolerated, not accepted. And it empowers and it equips those who feel that they are the victims of it to say, well, wait a minute, at that level it's not permitted? Why would it be permitted in, in the shop or in the office or somewhere else? And to what extent do you perceive that more popular campaigns like the Me Too campaign, and I understand mm. that there's something comparable in France, Out Your Pig, which yeah, I, I love right. that. Um, <laughs> Thank right. you. Um, to what extent do you think that those kinds of bottom-up campaigns might be affecting norms? Could they affect norms? I think, that, I, think they, I think they can, I think they do. And I think the whole challenge is to, to not let them sort of go to sleep and to use them to actually transform that emotion, that passion, that anger that solidarity, because many, many uh, men participated in those campaigns as well, into, into action, into practice, into what is actually the day-to-day -day life. But yes, I think it is certainly an, an important phenomenon and it, it, uh, it raises the level of awareness. Uh, it brings people to actually, actually question their, their, their behavior. And you know, it's, it can take so many, so many forms. I've always... Um, I've always grown up and, and practiced in international environments. Baker McKenzie was vastly international. The IMF includes more than 150 different nationalities in the staff. And it's, there is the sort of blatant, obvious sexual harassment case. There is the bullying at work. But there are more subtle things uh, which are sometimes totally unconscious um, and which have to do with cultural differences. If I'm... Uh, Let's, I mean, I know it's a bit stereotyped what I'm going to say, but if I am a, a Japanese person, a Japanese woman, I regard this space as my private space and one that you should not enter and that certainly, and 
big alpha male should not enter. Now, there are some male from various jurisdictions that do not have that perception of the private space and who can come very close and talk to you very close. That is regarded as some form of, of harassment at the workplace by that Japanese person. And I, you know, no offense to Japan and everybody has their right to define their space. But it, it can take multiple forms and we have to be attentive to all these multiple forms of, of harassment and, and non-respect for the person. In terms of the Me Too movement, it's, it has been criticized or it has been characterized at the very least as being predominantly effective in uh, white collar industries and in wealthier countries. Mm. What might be done for women in emerging markets or for that matter, women in lower income positions in rich countries? I mean, given that they do seem to have been left out at least of the, the the conversation here, and I would imagine the conversation in lots of other places as well. You're right, because it's, it's you know, Me Too in a way is, is scratching the surface. And uh, when you look at, and, it, and it's bad, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's, uh, it's, it's trivial and, and not important. It is, and it's, it's vitally important for some people who have suffered as a result. But when I say scratching the surface, it's because you, know, you, you, you can think of the violence against women. And you were talking about emerging countries. I think the low-income countries are even those that are most, where women are most victims of, of violence. And they are still to this day countries where there is no conflict, and yet where violence against women is, is part of the day-to-day -day life and is regarded as normal. Uh, you talk about the beating, you talk about the sexual mutilations, you talk about the, uh, the uh, determined abortion when the child is, a, is, is female. Um, so all that is there, and uh, you know, we, we are not talking a lot about it. Certainly the Me Too campaign was not about that at all. So then what, what would be positive steps towards it's, making it's, those it's, kinds of changes? It's activism, it's, it's uh, uh, as much awareness as is possible, and it's naming, shaming, but also trying to understand why that is and where it is rooted and where it is coming from. You know, I, I travel to many countries uh, which are members of the organization, and there is no single country that I visit where I don't sit with a group of women of all horizons, all uh, professions to try to understand. And I don't, I don't do much talking as I do now. Uh, and I sit and I listen to what they have to say and, uh, and where, where are problems coming from based on their understanding of their society, their culture, their history. And sometimes you, you know, I certainly hear things that I will not ever uh, hear when I talk to the authorities, to the finance ministers, the leaders and the central bank governors. But the, 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 the underlying violence that exists uh, in some societies is just you know flabbergasting and and horrifying in some cases but in in some, in quite a few instances it has been internalized by the women themselves and i will not mention the country but not long ago i was visiting one where a very high ranking woman actually was explaining to me that if she did not get a good beating now and again she felt that she was not loved and I was like, as, uh, you know, how can you say that? And she said, well, I was brought up like that. And uh, my mother would, would, would treat me that way. And that was the way I perceived her uh, 
her affection towards me, and it, it, it endures. So you have to get to the, the bottom of where it's coming from, why, and understand what can actually address that. Is it, is it education at an early age? Is it um, you know, being more independent financially? Is it uh, I don't think that sort of preaching from the outside is going to be particularly efficient. I think, I think supporting, helping, showing differences uh, is, is critically important. But I would say that, bottom line, education is probably what will help most. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and obviously, the, the no, I was, I was going to say that you know, the standard of living and the, the economic circumstances also matter enormously. And it's, it's true in a way, but it's only partly true, because you find that violence in, in, in many levels of, of society, irrespective of, uh, of level of income, actually. How much does having women in very high-profile leadership positions make a difference? I mean, if you have, in, in your unnamed mm. country that you mentioned, if you have women who seem to have these views of what it, uh, of the appropriate um, interaction, mm. d domestic interactions, uh, is having women in leadership positions, I guess, enough if they themselves no, carry no. these sort of, in, in I what mean, I would it, consider almost regressive you know, it, it, it views helps. about these issues? I think it helps, uh, but it's, it's not enough. And, and the numbers are there. When you look at the, 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 the num, you know, even in my country, France, which is a sophisticated and developed country, there is a level of violence against women, which, in my view, is totally unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of women in positions of power, I was looking back through some of the things that you've said about women in important jobs over time. And some years ago, you oh had, dear. Uh, <laughs> I think you know where this is going. You had made a comment about uh, if it had been Lehman sisters instead yeah. of Lehman brothers, we wouldn't be in this mess yeah. or something to that effect. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit about what you meant? I did say, I did say that. I did, say, I did say that, and, and I, still, I, would, I would still say it, although I know that there is a little bit of research here and there which challenges that view. But, you know, when you, when you have a, um, and I've experienced that because I've, I've worked in, in highly male-dominated environment, when you have this sort of what I call corridor thinking, which is probably group thinking, of everybody thinking in the same way, having gone to the same schools, having uh, the same sort of... Um, attention span, the same level of testosterone, the same impulse, the same attitudes, you end up with decisions that are never questioned, that are always sort of the group thinking, and it produces results that we've seen. So I'm not suggesting that if it was only a female environment, it would be much better, but I'm saying that there, there would have to be much more diverse environment for good decisions to be made, for uh, choices to be questioned, for, for doubts to be uh, acceptable. And, and I think that diversity is absolutely vital for, um, for better output and for better results. Yeah. Okay. And I think there's plenty of, you know, when you, whether it's the consulting firms, whether it's uh, some of the, uh, the, the newspapers research, I'm sure that the, the Post must have done some research on that. In the private sector, in the public sector, you reach either a high level of profitability or better uh, decision-making process when you have a diverse environment. 
So we are now 10 and years. And I think women yes. are more cautious as well. M more cautious? More cautious in general. And I know this is disputed and you have some psychologists uh, writing against it in a way, but it's, uh, I'm convinced, and I think there is also research to show that when, when you compare you know, the trading pattern of a, a woman trader and the trading pattern of a, of a man trader, the, uh, the, the level of rotation is, is lower in the female uh, trading portfolio. And the outcome at the end of the day in, in sort of regular time is probably a little bit lower, but in times of crisis is much higher. Mm -hmm. So you have to balance out and edge your bets and have both men and women. That's interesting. I mean, I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of hand-wringing here in the United States about how too many of our best and brightest were going into finance. Um, but if, if that's the case, should we be having more, more of our talented women going into finance or fewer of our talented women going into <laughs> finance? I mean, is it a waste of resources or not? You know, I hope we've learned from the financial crisis that uh, working in finance is not the ultimate panacea. Um, and we need, we need talented men and women in that field as well. And we need people who have not only the sense of greed and individual profit optimization, but a bit of a sense of what finance is about and what it should do for society and for the economy. Um, but finance should not, as I said, be the, uh, the ultimate best place to be. I think it is not. When you, when you, when you talk to uh, business school professors and, and deans in the best business schools, they will tell you that whereas you know, 15 years ago, everybody wanted to go in finance and everybody wanted to uh, you know, produce those wonderful algorithms that, that would make you rich instantly. I think this is no longer the case. That's what they say, which is good. Well, we are now a decade out from the financial crisis. I'm, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about where you perceive things going now. I mean, for example, um, we have a lot of central banks that are unwinding or tightening even simultaneously. How, how worried should we be about all of that happening at once? Should that, could that expose vulnerabilities in the global economy? How do you think about that question? I think you're correct that we will, you know, as, as the global economy improves and, and as that recovery seems to really take roots on, on a global basis, because it's not just the emerging market economies leading the, the, the way or just the advanced economies, it's pretty much all economies uh, producing and participating in, the, in that growth movement, which is almost at the pace where we were in the decade before the financial crisis. And it is because of that you know, good situation uh, that gradually central banks are going to begin tightening monetary policy, uh, have or are in the process or will be stopping their purchase of, uh, of, of, of financial uh, bonds of different categories and will gradually also begin raising interest rates. So it's because of a good set of circumstances that they move in that direction. So that's, that's number one. Number two, I don't think that they're going to be totally synchronized. And uh, you know, we've seen the Fed uh, raise interest rates already uh, four times since, uh, since uh, January a year ago. The ECB is still buying and certainly has not begun raising interest rates. But they did drop their easing bias language today. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, it's, you know, it's, but they're still buying nonetheless. Huh? 
uh, what I think what I don't I don't want to overinterpret what Mario Draghi said, but it's simply an indication that there is a term to that sort of um, uh, quantitative easing policy that has been adopted for a few years now, but they're still doing it. Um, the UK has just begun uh, raising interest rate once, and Japan is still, you know, with very, very uh, uh, low interest rates and still buying significant amount of, of um, um, assets on the markets. So it's not synchronized, and I think that's good. Because if there was perfect synchronicity, that, that could expose uh, serious vulnerabilities uh, around. Now, clearly what will happen as a result of that very likely monetary tightening initiated in the United States and probably to be followed through in the UK, then in the, in the uh, Euro area and possibly later in Japan, is that financing costs will rise. And you know, those countries and those corporates that around the world have uh, consumed a lot of uh, borrowing, because borrowing was so cheap, uh, will be facing uh, a debt service, uh, will be facing um, a financing situation that is harder. So for those that are weak, that do not have buffers, uh, that are zombie corporates, and there are some in some places around the world, it will be tough. Yeah. What is it the Warren Buffett analogy with when the, when the sea, when, uh, when the flows is out, then uh, those without swimming costume are in trouble? Right, right. <laughs> we might have a bit of that. <laughs> uh, what about other possible risks on the horizon? We have the threat of a trade war now. How worried should we be about that? in the United States, in, uh, in other advanced economies, and in poorer economies that maybe won't have swimming costumes, um, <laughs> you know, if they're faced with a, a shock like uh, a major trade war? Well, I would say first that um, trade has been, uh, historically and is now, uh, one of the critical engine for growth. And it, it took us almost a decade to turn the situation around, to be back at a stage where, you know, about 120 out of 180 countries are driving that uh, recovery process. And my hope is that trade can continue to be that engine of growth going forward, particularly given the fact that the current growth that we see at the moment is largely fueled by a combination of trade and investment. And they, they go together. It's not as if you could say, okay, well, I'll switch off the trade engine and I, I'll, I'll pump up a bit the investment engine. They, they go hand in hand. So I hope that that trade engine can continue to work if we hope to keep that recovery, which itself is creating the jobs, which is increasing the, um, the living and the income of, of many people around, around the world. My hope is that um, the arguments that um, have been made here and there can be sorted out promptly, can be sorted out cooperatively, and that uh, we do not go into 
uh, a tit for tat and, and, and escalation of those tit for tats. Because in trade wars, we've seen it historically, there is no winner. So those are your hopes. Yeah. Um, well, what can I do? <laughs> uh, what might be the consequences, though, if we did have a tit for tat? I mean, could you imagine the global economic recovery that we have seen the last few years, losing steam, mm -hmm. reversing? I mean, what sure. what are the dire what are wh how dire are the potential consequences? I would say. Well, you you cannot just look at one country in isolation because if you do. Well, it's in and of itself, and if it's, if it's a teat only, not tit for tat, and so on and so forth, it's probably not a, a, a major, it probably doesn't have a major impact. I think net-net, it's, it's losing job, it's probably a teeny tiny uh, potential risk in, in, in the growth. But the risk of that trigger is that it does produce the tat, and that, that tat then entails a tit, which itself produces a tat, and so on and so forth. And it is that escalation that, that is, in and of itself, dangerous for the impact that it has on all those economies, and furthermore, for the impact that it has on confidence. And confidence is a super precious good that builds over time and that can be destroyed very quickly. If the perception of investors around the world is that this is uncertain, you never know where the tariffs are going to go, how high, how low, against whom, on what basis, with what scope, with what exceptions, then you, you sort of, you, you, you step back and you, you, you don't invest, you wait. And that confidence impact could be, could be significant. It's, so it's a combination of all that which can be triggered by something which in and of itself is not going to be of massive impact for the entire global economy. Also in the years following um, Lehman and the financial crisis and contagion throughout the world, uh, we did see a greater effort amongst lots of different countries, lots of different regulatory systems to coordinate yep. on financial regulation, yep. Basel and, and uh, through other means. Um, there has been pressure. Or the G20, you know, the, the, the London G20 right after the uh, the, the, the crisis in 2008 was a, a, a magnificent collective effort to actually rein in uh, the, the, the financial risks. But more recently, particularly here, I don't know as much about the, the environment elsewhere, there has been pressure to reverse some of those mm -hmm. changes that were made, um, you know, in terms of banking regulation, financial regulation. How big of a concern is that? How, how much does the IMF pay attention to that? How, how worried are you about um, what, those changes that could be coming, or is it is it that we went too far and this is a you know we're, we overcorrected mm. and now we're mm. un undercorrecting or whatever the right uh, analogy would be? I mean, how do you think about those kinds of developments? You know, initially the reason I mentioned London is that in London it sounded so sort of straightforward and simple. It was no product, no market, no player will be without proper regulation, proper supervision, and the fear was. Uh, yet another risk to the, not so much to the financial sector, but a risk to the overall uh, economy and a risk to all the depositors around the world who had untrusted um, their, their savings and their deposits with the banks, because that's really what it was about at the time. So that general principle stood and, and, and stands uh, today. 
it was, I was going to say, that was 10 years ago. And the corrections that were needed in terms of capital ratio, leverage ratio, um, loss absorption capacity of banks was corrected over time and fortunately laboriously. So you had, over the course of time, uh, Basel II, Basel III, Basel III plus, plus, now Basel IV. So there was an element of um, constant negotiations between those of us who wanted regulation and supervision, the financial sector at large, which was itself segmented between various categories of banks, which were not all necessarily under the same umbrella, but which were initially not resisting at all because they were in such a, a dear situation that there was no capacity to resist at the time. So we should have moved faster then. But then as things improved, the capacity to argue, lobby, resist, identify better, um, uh, be more picky about all these regulations uh, improved. And, and as a result of that, and because it's a sophisticated and complicated and technical field as well, and made more technical by those who belong to that field on purpose. Uh, it took time and it, it was revised regularly over time, which produced a level of fatigue, you know, sort of uh, reform and regulatory fatigue, which was understandable. Amongst the financial institutions, you mean? Or amongst, amongst the, the public? Yeah, yeah, no, amongst the financial institutions uh, and, and in their dialogue with the supervisors and the regulators as well. And, and that probably produced also an, an overdrive of um, uh, tedious, laborious, and as I said, very, very uh, specific regulations. Some of which could certainly, in our view, and we're looking at it very carefully and, and attentively, some of which could certainly be streamlined, a bit simplified, thresholds for some small banks could be lowered, and, and, and we, we do not have an issue with that. Now, if that, which is, in our view, legitimate, was extended, uh, stretched, and uh, uh, carved, and were carved in some additional exemptions, some additional uh, reductions, some further lowering of thresholds <clears throat> in sectors where there has to be strong capital, there has to be uh, liquidity ratios in place, there has to be leverage, <coughs> limitations, there has to be loss-absorbing capacity in order to resist the next potential shock that happens, then that would be a real issue. And I think that we should all make sure that it doesn't happen. So traditionally, uh, I think a lot of us think of the IMF as being an institution that works with um, lower and middle income countries, right? Emerging markets in, in particular. Mm. Uh, traditionally, yeah, yeah, I should yeah, yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, emphasis on that word. Um, providing guidance on how to get your debt under control, being the lender of last resort, et cetera. What do you make of the fact that lots of advanced economies still have very large debt levels? In the United States, we are arguably um, running an interesting experiment with twin de deficits, uh, which is normally something that the IMF admonishes poorer countries for doing. Uh, what do you make of all of this? I mean, does, does the United States need an IMF program? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I think our, our quota would have to be really fat and big <laughs> in order to help. Um, you know, we do three things. We do what we call surveillance, which is you know, an, an annual audit review and in-depth analysis of all economies around the world, the United States included, the UK, France, Germany, Japan, and you name it. And annually, we give our policy recommendations, uh, which countries decide to either follow, be inspired by, or decide to ignore at their peril. So that's one thing. Second thing we do is, and that's massive actually, it's the fastest growing um, business line, if you will, that we have, and that is um, capacity development. We provide technical assistance, training, predominantly in low-income countries and in emerging market economies, but also to some advanced economies. Uh, whether it's you know, improving the debt management system, whether it's public finance management, whether it's um, uh, banking regulations, we, 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 we provide that and we have lots of uh, actually technical and training centers in Africa in particular. And the third activity we have, which is the one that we are most sort of well known for, is uh, providing lending uh, to countries that have massive crisis of balance of payment and that cannot get financing elsewhere. And we provide the international community money. It's a bit like a credit union, the IMF. Uh, so we provide international community money. And in consideration for that, the countries commit to improve their, their, their public finance, restore their position, and be in a situation where they can finance themselves by normal means. So I'm concerned about um, the increase of, of the debt level around the world. Because if you look at where it is now, it is higher than where it was prior to 2007. And that includes sovereign and corporate uh, in, in, in you know, many corners of the world. It's not specific to the US, it's not specific to Japan, it's not specific to uh, you know, corporates in, in various countries. It's, it's As a percent of GDP, across, you mean? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And the debt service is fairly low at the moment because of course the, the financing terms uh, have been uh, extremely favorable for the last five years. So the, the, the debt service is, is, is accommodating in a way, which is, you know. But that may change. It may change, and that's where we might have difficulties, yes. Uh -huh. Which is why we are rec recommending one thing very clearly, very simply. We say, because growth is good, we say it's when the sun is shining, please fix the roof uh, and, and, and deal with you, build buffers, use your fiscal space to actually do the structural reforms that will improve uh, you, you, uh, you overall productivity and your capacity to resist. How receptive are advanced economies to that advice? You know, first of all, many of them have incredibly talented uh, economists and, and sometimes in some uh, country, in the case of some countries, many more than we have at the IMF. And the, the, the US is one example where clearly the Treasury Department has uh, you know, a number of economists which is largely superior to the US desk that we have at the IMF. But I think they, they, they like to at least confront their views. They, uh, I think, respect our analysis. They don't always agree with it. And uh, I've, you know, I found myself with many countries in a position to actually argue with them why we think that this approach or you know, combination of, of fiscal countercyclical policy is actually needed for them to, uh, to rebuild their, 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 their buffers. And where they say, well, not sure that we should do that now. Mm -hmm. When, you know, I was a finance minister for four years. It's, 
it's very tempting when you have a little bit of surplus, a little bit of fiscal space, to actually say to your colleagues or to the leader or the prime minister, whoever, who is keen to you know, finance things, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's social programs, it's tempting to say, okay, all right. But sometimes it's not okay. Or sometimes you don't even have the fiscal space. That's true. And you make that room. That is true. That is true. <laughs> we have seen that here, certainly. Um, so, and lastly, we're, we're close to the end, but I wanted to ask you a sort of a more general IMF's role in the world kind of question, a governance mm -hmm. question. So the IMF has, in the past, been criticized uh, for lagging behind in representing the global economy, mm -hmm. right? Um, particularly, the criticism has come from China, that China now represents something like 16%, what is it? I wrote it down. 15% of the global economy, but they still have 6% of the IMF vote. So my question is, um, how do you go about advising and helping shape the global economy if you don't represent it? How do you, how do you deal with that challenge? First of all, uh, we try to have as diverse a staff as we can. Because there's, you, I mean, the point is completely well taken. And um, the institution should better represent the membership in terms of contribution to the economy. But I'll come to that in a, in a minute. I think the fact that we have a very, very diverse staff with economists from all corners of the world and not you know, a dominant group that would be coming from the advanced economies and a small minority from the rest, uh, I think is an indication that we want all voices, all talents, and all recommendations to actually be produced by that very diverse groups. And I think they recognize that. You know, the fact that on my management committee, I have one American, yes, but I also have one Chinese, I have one Japanese, and I have one Brazilian. So uh, that's also an indication uh, of our determination to include as many voices and as representative voices as possible. Now, you referred to the 6% versus the 15%, 6% voice in the organization by way of quota, and 15% um, uh, contribution to the economy in GDP terms. The IMF is the only institution of all the Bretton Woods institutions and all the other international institutions where we have to, and this is in the articles that were signed in, you know, by many men, actually, 44 men at the time. I'm not sure that, well, there was a March 8 day in those days, but they clearly ignored it for the purpose of consolidating that group. Uh, when it was signed under the auspices of um, Lord Maynard Keynes and a few others, and Dexter White, of course, they included in the articles, wording to the effect that every five years we have to revisit, and every five years we have to uh, adjust on the basis of numbers, and we have to adjust the formula in order to better represent. So it's never an easy task. I've gone through one cycle. I'm now beginning another cycle. Uh, it's highly disputed. Uh, some people are very keen to keep their prerogatives. Uh, the US, which was clearly in a very strong position in 1944, has negotiated to have a veto right in the institution. So any decision that requires an 85% majority will only pass if the US is in agreement with it. And of course, when you have you know, enjoyed that kind of position and prerogative, it's not easy to, uh, to concede and to... To, to uh, give up power. <laughs> 
to, to, give up, to, to, to give up some of your power, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's unfortunately all the time that we have for this evening. Thank you very much, Madame Lagarde, for joining us. And if you'd like to watch video clips of any of this online or highlights from the interview, you can go to WashingtonPostLive.com. And thanks to everyone in the audience today, as well as those online for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.